The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. How are you, Jazz? Today to start out some hot jazz. Henry Red Allen and Pee Wee Russell, among others. This is Philip Larkin's music. We're talking about Philip Larkin today. What a guy, what a poet, a great lover of jazz. When he heard this, his life was changed. Music from then on was measured against this standard and very little measured up. So, this will be an interesting day, a fun one. We're going to roam around a bit. This the, the thing about Philip Larkin is I discovered him and his poetry when I was about 20 or so, and I fell in love. Maybe he was my Henry Red Allen and Pee Wee Russell. This was the guy. I got his collected works and read the poems. They spoke to me. His self-deprecation, his living life within limits. It's very English. Kind of bitter, kind of cramped. Kind of woe is me. And for me, a Midwesterner to my soul, the Midwest where we learn that life has limits. My small town, Wisconsin's soul, this was it. It was like all the people I knew, all the grown-ups with all their wild schemes and heartbreaking failures. Except... Larkin was also incredibly smart, and he liked poetry, and the poetry itself was the stuff of genius. Wonderful verse, clever rhymes and not rhymes, and very, very funny. Martin Amos calls him a novelist's poet, and that makes sense because Larkin was a novelist, first of all, but then, even in his poetry, although it's technically accomplished, he was a good versifier, kind of a throwback in that sense, you know, one of those poets who doesn't ignore all the rules and doesn't break all the rules, but who follows enough rules to make you appreciate that he's putting some restrictions on himself. So he sort of earns his chops as a poet that way, I guess you might say. That's a jazz phrase, by the way. Earns his chops. He earns his chops as a poet, but he's a novelist poet. What does that mean? Well, he has characters, sometimes himself and sometimes other people, and he conveys their human dilemma and their human struggle with the novelist's eye. There's observation, acute observation, and character writ large and character writ small. Interestingly, what, <laughs> what a great word. Interestingly, what a terrible word, too. Interestingly, is that really the transition we're using here at the History of Literature? Interestingly, is it time to fire some more interns? Interestingly, shouldn't we just put that word in front of every single sentence? If we have to say, if we have to announce that the sentence is interesting. Interestingly, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Now we have to fire some producers, too. That was just my example. Interestingly, that was just my example. Interestingly, I wasn't calling for the theme song. Interestingly, you're fired. Okay. 
Let's get back on track. We can tell what Larkin was like as a novelist, perhaps from something he said about England's most celebrated and admired, revered novelist, Charles Dickens. Larkin didn't even consider him a novelist, really. Quote, say what you like about Dickens as an entertainer. This was in a letter Larkin wrote. He cannot be considered a real writer at all, not a real novelist. His is the garish, gaslit, melodramatic barn where the yokels gape, end quote. That's the wised-up 20th century view of novels. This is after Middlemarch, after Thomas Hardy, one of Larkin's heroes, by the way, especially his poetry, after Virginia Woolf and James Joyce. Novels were not for the popcorn crowd. Just as we might today look at popular music before Bob Dylan or movies back when people were screaming at the trains rushing toward them in the theater. We consider those forms to be artistic now. We want more subtlety and refinement. Our expectations for grown-up engagement are higher. And yet, there's still room for entertainment and humor in novels, of course. Larkin was the one who urged Kingsley Amos, who was a great maker of faces. They were friends, by the way. We'll get to all that. Kingsley Amos was known for the faces he would make around the dormitory room or wherever they lived. <laughs> Apartments. Kingsley Amos was a great maker of faces, and Larkin urged him to include those in Lucky Jim. Some of the funniest parts in that novel which is still remarkably funny, even after all this time, are the faces that Jim Dixon makes. He made his sex life in ancient Rome face, is one example. And Larkin himself said, after his diatribe against Dickens as the pleaser of yokels, he added, quote, However, I much enjoyed GE, meaning great expectations, and may try another soon, end quote. But let's turn to the poems. As we listen to Larkin's poems today, let's listen for that mix of humor and entertainment along with intelligence and refinement. I'll start with some of the more famous funny poems. Here's an example from 1971 or so. This be the verse. Begins, They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Much loved Larkin poem. That kind of wry humor. The first line is shocking. What? We're not going to hear about the joys and hardships and, and ultimately the sacrifice of parenting. We're not going to hear from the poet who thinks, Why was I so hard on you when I was a teenager? Now I see that you were doing the best you could and what you did for me, the sacrifice you made, or, or all those fights you had. I didn't understand it, but now I do. We're going to hear that parents routinely screw up their children, even good parents, even well-intentioned ones. And then the lines, they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. That's like a nursery. That's like Dr. Seuss. 
in the verse. That's the the rhythm, the cadence here, and the rhyme scheme. And yet it's a laugh-out-loud funny sort of phrase. <laughs> what do parents do? They, they give you all their faults, and then they throw in a few extra just for you because they love you. And then we hear about the parents, their parents, the ones in the photos in old-style hats and coats who argued all the time, soppy stern, at each other's throats. And then the phrase, man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. What a grand statement. That's a writer who's not just reaching for the easy phrase or expression. We're not in Dr. Seuss territory anymore. That conveys the abstract thought vividly and with imagination. And then the kicker, get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Again, the meter there is perfect. It flows, it rushes. The rhythm of it is so perfect. Eight syllables in each line, but such airy words. There are hardly any consonants. Nothing to slow you down. Here's another humorous poem. The self-deprecation here. The gloominess. This is Charlie Brown grown up and reflecting on the world as he sees it. It's called A Study of Reading Habits. When getting my nose in a book cured most things short of school, it was worth ruining my eyes to know I could still keep cool and deal out the old right hook to dirty dogs twice my size. Later, with inch-thick specks, evil was just my lark. Me and my cloak and fangs had ripping times in the dark. The women I clubbed with sex, I broke them up like meringues. Don't read much now. The dude who lets the girl down before the hero arrives, the chap who's yellow and keeps the store, seem far too familiar. Get stewed. Books are a load of crap. Again, it's the irreverence that's so charming here. The first, the first poem we read looks at parenting, no homages to sacrifice or reflections on how hard things were and how parents struggled and ultimately taught us all a valuable lesson. Nope, they were awful, but their parents were awful too, and things are getting even worse. That's, that's the poem. Don't have kids. My three-year-old... He's 14 now, but when he was three, he was already gloomy. One morning I said, good morning, how are you today? And he said, worse. That's the spirit of Larkin in a nutshell. Worse. And it's as wonderful as rain or a cold and bitter wind. It wakes you up. Like dabbing cocaine in your eyeballs, as Freud used to do. But Larkin wasn't just a long-form limerick writer. He wasn't just comedy. Even those poems I read had thought behind them, but they're sort of like little stand-up routines. His A Study of Reading Habits takes a similar approach. I know what everyone tells you. Books are great. Books teach you everything. Books open new worlds. Nah, I'm going to tell you that Books are a bunch of cliches. They're a load of crap. They don't tell you the truth about the world. They may have been my escape, but they're not now. They're not helping me here. They're not going to help you either. But look at the rhyme scheme. A, B, C, B, A, C. Those are the three stanzas. 
They're clever. The rhymes are things like specks and sex and fangs and meringues. Dude and stewed, chap and crap. A lot of complexity there. In the third stanza, notice how the, the we don't have end rhymes there. The lines flow into one another. Break things up now just like the reading is broken up now. Things have gotten more complicated in his life, and they get more complicated in the stanza. This is beautiful stuff for people who like poetry, and yet it's so readable. It's the book to buy for people who don't like poems. Give them some Philip Larkin. See what they think. Maybe that's why it appealed to me as well. Maybe I felt like books were a load of crap at that point, or poems. Maybe I felt like it was all cliches or all overwritten, overwrought. Hmm. Let's turn to one with a more melancholy tone. Still in the jazzy, irreverent style of Larkin. He doesn't reach back to the language of Shakespeare or feel obligated to ignore the century that he's in. He uses the contradiction between his control as a poet, his mastery, and words like fuck and colloquialisms like get stewed to bring us this modern sensibility, even as we feel like we're in a world of, as a poet, a poetic world. Let's not go back as far as Shakespeare and Milton or the Romantics, but let's use his models, the models that he had, poets like Yeats and Thomas Hardy and Auden. They wrote verse like Larkin's. Those were the poets he admired and preferred over modernists like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot and that crew. He wasn't looking for the rules of poetry to be exploded into bits. He valued meter and rhyme and form. But Hardy and Yeats are not going to give us a line like they fuck you up your mom and dad. That's a 20th century line. Late 20th century. Second half of the 20th century. In Larkin's terms, maybe we call it post-jazz. And here's where we go deep. This one is called High Windows. When I see a couple of kids and guess he's fucking her and she's taking pills or wearing a diaphragm, I know this is paradise everyone old has dreamed of all their lives. Bonds and gestures pushed to one side like an outdated combine harvester. And everyone young going down the long slide to happiness endlessly. I wonder if anyone looked at me 40 years back and thought, that'll be the life. No God anymore, or sweating in the dark about hell and that, or having to hide what you think of the priest he and his lot will all go down the long slide like free, bloody birds. And immediately, rather than words, comes the thought of high windows, the sun-comprehending glass, and beyond it, the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. Mm. High windows. This poem takes my breath away people. High windows. I knew that sentiment well, that feeling from my days in church with the wall of stained glass windows and, and my visits to other churches, even now, the austerity of an empty chapel, let's say, 
with a stone floor and stone walls and high windows where the sunlight can come down through the sun-comprehending glass. There's a feeling in this that's tough to describe exactly. My read of it is that it's kind of like Nietzsche's abyss. Nietzsche used to talk about this all the time in his braggy sort of way. Are you ready for the abyss? I'm looking in the abyss. Are you ready? Can you take it? What did he mean by that? I'm killing God, he was saying, or God is dead. I'm announcing. Are you going to be able to handle this? What I'm telling you is true. Are you sure? Because from where I stand, it looks like you need God quite a bit. He looks pretty essential to how you think of yourself and how you govern yourself and what you tell yourself about who you are. Seems kind of foundational. What are you going to do without that foundation? That's Nietzsche. And Larkin is kind of in that world. He was born in 1922. Then the 60s and the 70s. He had had one world from 1922 all through the Depression, all through World War II. The deprivation of World War II and post-World War II as it affected Britain. The Blitz. The rationing. And then... In the 60s and 70s, he's looking at his world today and he says, Whoa, look at these young people. Look at everyone having sex. All that morality we had, all of that that agony, that guilt. There's a line in a, an Updike novel, I think it's Couples, where a woman says to a man, Welcome to the post-pill paradise. Now, I didn't live through that sexual revolution I came after, but I can see how it might have felt to someone who did live through it. Growing up, listening to people telling you that sex or premarital sex is sinful and might send you to hell, and and living through that as a teenager and as someone in your 20s and coming to grips with your body and your actions and being around everyone who's in that same boat, everyone struggling with those feelings and having grown-ups with their own hang-ups, sometimes violent ones on the subject, and then suddenly you're on the other side of it. You're on the other side of the sexual revolution. You're not young. You're not 18 or 20. You're 40, 45, approaching 50, and you think, yes, Yes, this might seem like paradise to those of us who grew up in the old days with the old way of doing things, the old way of thinking. But is this paradise? Are we free bloody birds? Shouldn't we be happier after this change? And he he doesn't, Larkin in the poem, doesn't make an argument that one thing is better or not. He doesn't weigh the sides and make the case or say anything as clunky as as things were better when I was young, I wish there were more rules in place, or things are better now. Thank goodness we've made this change. Instead, he turns to poetry, to an image, to a feeling. That feeling of being in a place like a sanctuary, with high windows, streaming sunlight, I picture this in a church anyway. That's where my high windows are. Outside the sky, that deep blue air, and it's wide open. 
It's beyond us. It's the feeling that something is larger than us. It's not God or heaven, but it might be God or heaven. It's not the universe, but it might be that too. It's freedom, but it's also nothingness. It's dramatic and sublime. It's a moment when you catch your breath at how vast and unknowable everything is, how beautiful, but also agonizing. And it's that feeling that resonates when we think of something like, are the decades making things better? Are the changes for the better? Look at how different things are now. Just think of the way things used to be and how much that dominated us then and how things are now and how much that dominates us today. Look at the small miracle of a mind, a single mind, making its way through the world, thinking, absorbing, reflecting, influencing, and being influenced by and multiply that by a million people, or a hundred million, or more. These minds all alive, attached to these bodies, aging, trying to do their best. All of this in a few short lines. And puts into words, he says, he says it's thoughts that come. Right? Larkin says that in the poem. It's thoughts that come. But he puts them into words, which translates them, Back into thoughts for me, the feeling of high windows, so simple, but so recognizable to me and so powerful. And to notice what's on the other side of those high windows, the light that's in here, the feeling it gives me, the hush in here, but outside that wide open sky, I'm safe and yet I'm not, I'm big and yet I'm tiny. That's what I get for this poem. I read this in about 1990 or so, and I was stunned. 1991, maybe 1992, something like that. Because it's, and here's what stunned me. As soon as I had found this hero, this was my guy. This was poetry I wanted to read. This had everything I was looking for. And probably within months of this discovery and finding that I had this hero, this could be the contemporary or near contemporary that I would look to, a modern, old enough to be someone I could learn from, but modern enough that it wasn't like reaching back to Shakespeare or Fitzgerald. Shakespeare was still a hero, but Fitzgerald was already starting to fade for me, and who else did I have? Well, now I had Philip Larkin. I could read these poems over and over, enjoy them, and within months... Although it feels like weeks or days, <laughs> so short was my my ability to enjoy Larkin, one view of Larkin I had, because the news came out. Larkin had some personal issues. He was not the speaker of the poet only. He had a, a pretty vast and complicated personal life, including casual, even habitual racism that comes out in his his letters, misogyny, the specter of Nazism. Where would it go? To what level would it sink? Oh, and for me, what, my hero? Oh, do I have to read this biography now? Everyone's talking about Larkin. I had a poet. Now I've got a person. What does this mean for him? And what does that mean for the poems? Now, you might have your mind made up already about this. You do not need to email me to tell me what you think. Believe me, 
I have considered this question from all angles already, and to say, oh, we should focus on the poems and not the poet, Jack, that's not enough. And to say we should focus on the poet and not the poems is not enough either. I'm sorry if you feel like your opinion is rock solid on this and you have something to tell the world. I suggest you start a podcast and announce those opinions to the world or a blog, or a Twitter account. There are a lot of places, you don't need to at me if you do that, by the way, a lot of places where loud and strong opinions are valued. Atheists like to talk loudly, and so do true believers, and I'm an agnostic and see truths here and truths there and wrestle with questions like this in a different way. We'll take a similar approach here, just as we did with Lolita. Here we try to wrestle with the hard questions And we try not to turn them into easy ones that miss all the subtlety. And sometimes we reach not for words, but for the thought of high windows or a story or an anecdote or a reference or an image or a feeling which expresses this complexity in a way that goes way beyond words, way beyond any I know X or actually it's Y. Sometimes there are things we don't know and can't quite explain or can't explain away, and that's okay too. So, let me pause here for some good news. I'm going to read you a story today. It came across the internet to me, a story of a good guy, hopefully. Actually, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with two pieces of good news. Why not? (laughs) Why not pile up the good news? One is personal to the podcast. The other is about a celebrity, and they're both fun. And then we'll dive into Philip Larkin, which is also going to be fun but maybe more complicated fun. We're analyzing a wonderful poet and a flawed human being after this. My man's got something He gives me such a thrill Every time he smiles at me I can't keep my body still I done tried so Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Nightmare last night When I lay down When I 
Okay, so we're going to get more to Philip, get, get back to Philip Larkin, his life, his works, and all the rethinking of Larkin and his reputation that occurred after his death. But first, let me give you a bit of good news. This one comes from New Zealand and a special pair of listeners there. First, I got this email. Subject, Mother's Day plus postcard. Dear Jack, my name is Isla. I am 15 years old and from New Zealand. My mom loves your The History of Literature podcast and has always told me how much she would love one of your postcards, but she doesn't think she can ask for one since it's been four years since you were giving them away. Because Mother's Day is coming up, I thought I might as well ask if you had one spare. I know she would really love it. Smiley face. Yes, I've listened to the podcast a couple of times recently with her and intend on listening to much more of it in my own time now. I really enjoy your warm, welcoming, and interesting approach to literature. I've given it a five-star rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Kindest regards, Isla. Mmm. That's so tremendous. <laughs> what a bright spot of sunshine in my cloudy world. I love this email. I was thrilled to receive it. I love these Parents and kids' emails, they are some of my favorite. We had our Irish family, of course. That was one of the highlights of the past five years, for sure. Kids who know that their parents like the podcast, or parents who introduce their kids to it, or who are listening together in the car, or in the living room, in front of the fireplace on a Saturday night. This is really, well, it, it probably delights me more than it should it energizes me. It sustains me. It fills my bucket, as they say. And as I say this, I realize that I started today's podcast with a poem that says, <laughs> they F you up, your mom and dad. Don't listen to that, kids. They don't always. They're good people who help you grow and help you learn. And you should mostly listen to what they tell you because they're giving you some guardrails to help make sure you don't fall off a cliff. And they're supplying love hopefully. And I think in the case of History of Literature podcast listeners, I can say that with some degree of confidence. They're good people. They are not just doing their best. They're doing good. Now, back to the email. Here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is I still do have some postcards and will, of course, send one to Isla's mom, probably a couple. She likes Virginia Woolf and Alexander McCall Smith and William Shakespeare and Jane Austen. I have learned. Isla told me that, so that's no problem at all. I've got postcards in those areas. I will have postcards for Isla's mom. The bad news was there was no way I could get one to New Zealand in time for Mother's Day. <laughs> the email came in a little too late for that. So Isla and I came up with a solution. I would send the cards, but in the meantime, to be more timely, I would send her mom an email saying hello and wishing her a happy Mother's Day. So that's what I did. And I'll say it now, a day late. Happy Mother's Day, Annabelle. These are great names, by the way. Is everyone in New Zealand this wonderful? Annabelle and Isla. Happy Mother's Day, Annabelle. I hope you and Isla had a wonderful day. And happy Mother's Day to all you mums out there. You're Daughters and sons appreciate you, and so do we here at the History of Literature. Now, here's the other good news. Time to have some sunshine. People get upset. They say, well, why aren't you talking more about Philip Larkin? 
Well, guess what? Philip Larkin. <laughs> he had a poem called High Windows. He didn't always talk about high windows. Have some patience. Here's a story about Roger Moore that's been around for a few years, apparently, although it just crossed my timeline last week. I love this story. Let me read it to you. It's from a comedian named Mark Haynes, apparently, and he writes about a couple of chance meetings that he had with Roger Moore, the actor who played James Bond in the 70s and 80s. Now, I have my own little anecdote about Roger Moore, not personally, <laughs> Always reminds me of this. When I went to visit Beijing, went to see the Forbidden City, it took an audio tour. Roger Moore was the voice that was in our headphones. And my friend, a guy I'd been traveling with for a while, was traveling with a couple of Brits. One of these guys was kind of young, <laughs> kind of fiery. And we started listening and we said, oh, we kind of, Waved at each other, you know, eyebrows raised. Look, isn't this nice? Roger Moore's reading this. He had introduced himself. Hi, I'm Roger Moore. And afterwards, the guy, this friend of mine said, Roger Moore. I didn't know he was a, a scholar of China. And I said, well, you know, he's, he's an actor. Might have just been reading the script. He might not be a, a scholar of the Forbidden City. This friend of mine got very agitated. And he said, he's a cultured man. He is British. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So here's a story about, about this man, Roger Moore, the actor who played James Bond in the 70s and 80s. As a seven-year-old in about 1983, in the days before first-class lounges at airports, I was with my granddad in Nice Airport and saw Roger Moore sitting at the departure gate, reading a paper. I told my granddad I'd just seen James Bond and asked if we could go over so I could get his autograph. My granddad had no idea who James Bond or Roger Moore were, so we walked over and he popped me in front of Roger Moore with the words, my grandson says you're famous. Can you sign this? As charming as you'd expect, Roger asks my name and duly signs the back of my plane ticket, a fulsome note full of best wishes. I'm ecstatic. But as we head back to our seats, I glance down at the signature. It's hard to decipher it, but it definitely doesn't say James Bond. My granddad looks at it, half figures out it says Roger Moore, I have absolutely no idea who that is, and my heart sinks. I tell my granddad he's signed it wrong, that he's put someone else's name. So my granddad heads back to Roger Moore, holding the ticket, which he's only just signed. I remember staying by our seats and my granddad saying, He says you've signed the wrong name. He says your name is James Bond. Roger's, Roger Moore's face crinkled up with realization, and he beckoned me over. When I was by his knee, he leaned over, looked from side to side, raised an eyebrow, and in a hushed voice said to me, I have to sign my name as Roger Moore, because otherwise, Blofeld might find out I was here. He asked me not to tell anyone that I'd just seen James Bond, and he thanked me for keeping his secret. I went back to our seats, 
my nerves absolutely jangling with delight. My granddad asked me if he'd signed James Bond. No, I said. I'd got it wrong. I was working with James Bond now. Many, many years later, I was working as a scriptwriter on a recording that involved UNICEF, and Roger Moore was doing a piece to camera as an ambassador. He was completely lovely, and while the cameramen were setting up, I told him in passing the story of when I met him in Nice Airport. He was happy to hear it, and he had a chuckle and said, Well, I don't remember, but I'm glad you got to meet James Bond. So that was lovely. And then he did something so brilliant. After the filming, he walked past me in the corridor, heading out to his car. But as he got level, he paused, looked both ways, raised an eyebrow, and in a hushed voice said, Of course I remember our meeting in Nice, but I didn't say anything in there because those cameramen, any one of them could have been working for Blofeld. I was as delighted at thirty as I had been at seven. What a man. What a tremendous man. Isn't that wonderful? Roger Moore sounds fantastic, and I'm glad to hear it. I love this story, and I sort of wish we lived in a world where that's the only kind of story that we ever heard about celebrities, the good things they've done. I'm going to watch James Bond, and I like when I see Roger Moore as James Bond, and I like it even more when I know that Roger Moore could be such a good guy. When I watch James Bond, it tarnishes it a bit to to hear that Sean, Can Sean Connery, an actor I love as an actor, probably my favorite Bond, although Daniel Craig is up there, but it tarnishes it a bit to hear of Sean Connery's personal flaws. I don't know if Roger Moore has any flaws like that. I'm not sure, and I'm not going to look it up because I have plenty of other examples to use. Today, there was a time in my life when my favorite comedian was Bill Cosby, who's in jail now for horrendous crimes. My favorite filmmaker was Woody Allen. It's another complicated case. He was cleared of criminal wrongdoing, but there are serious questions about whether that was a full investigation. And at best, you can say he married his stepdaughter, whom he had known when she was underage, which is unseemly enough for me even setting aside the other the accusations, the things that could have happened. My favorite pop singer for most of my childhood was Michael Jackson. Again, cleared by a jury, but highly problematic at best. We have this problem with heroes. So many of them were flawed, are flawed, and I hear you. The art matters, not the artist. Except it doesn't, does it? That's too simple to just say that. I used to enjoy Bill Cosby because of his warmth, his fatherly presence, his wisdom. And if that was all a lie, if that was fake, it takes away from the comedy. I don't enjoy the comedy anymore. I'm sorry, I just don't. I don't urge it on my kids and say, let's enjoy this together. If this had never come out, or if we didn't know this, I would for sure have watched The Cosby Show with my kids. We watch everything around it, but I can't stomach that show anymore. Because when I see him, I think, what a creep. What an awful person he was. I don't enjoy his art anymore. And part of it was because of what I looked to Bill Cosby to be. My dad. America's dad. 
And I do watch some Woody Allen movies, but not others. I used to love Annie Hall, but now I watch and think, ah, what a creep. And Manhattan, my God, it's practically a confession. And Husbands and Wives, the figure of Woody Allen, who I used to look to the way I look to Ingmar Bergman, he was Ingmar Bergman light, sometimes for the worse, but also sometimes for the better. And now I just thought he doesn't have anything to tell me. That's what I think thought the last time I watched Woody Allen. If you, if you look to an economist, let's say, and you believe in what he or she teaches you, and then it turns out that they're all wrong and a liar, you probably don't listen to that person again. If you look to an artist, a comedian, or a filmmaker to tell you the truth about the human condition... And then you realize that they're deceiving everyone, including themselves, and they're pretty unreliable when it comes to assessing the human condition. You can think, I don't trust this person's judgment anymore. They make assumptions about flaws that they extend to other people. You ever hear that? Well, all men do X. That's a Woody Allen thing. All men think this way. And you think, what? I'm a man. I don't do that. I don't think that way. That's the kind of thing I mean. They mess up the universal and the particular. They don't see their own hang-ups, their own flaws, the darkness in themselves. And maybe that's fine for an artist, either because we ignore that about them or because we explore it with them. Maybe they're not as... Maybe they are self-aware. Maybe they give us something to explore with them. Or... Here's an example of ignoring. I still listen to Michael Jackson, and I still enjoy his music. In fact, human nature, ah, oh, that's great stuff. Man in the Mirror comes on, and I sing it loudly if I'm alone in the car. Here's the thing, though. I never looked to Michael Jackson to give me any news about anything. I never listened to his lyrics thinking I was listening to a, a poet or a prophet. It was always ear candy, and it's still sweet in my ears and fills me with nostalgia. Actors have been kind of the same way for me. I watched The Usual Suspects the other day, and Kevin Spacey was in it, and it didn't bother me too much. I was fine with it. I'm also fine with Kevin Spacey not being in movies much anymore. Other actors can take his place for all I care. I don't really care if he doesn't make as much money as he used to or win prizes the way he awards the way he used to. He's had a good run. And if producers don't want to hire him anymore, that's fine with me. We can let other people take his place. There are other actors. Writers are held to a higher standard for me because I do look to them to deliver news and insight unless they're Agatha Christie or Lee Child or something. And even then, I usually do want to hear what they have to say about human beings in some way. And if an artist, let's say an artist is a Nazi and they're exploring what, what took them to that point and they describe it and I'm learning, yes, I'm in. I don't discount it simply because he's a Nazi. I want to hear what he says, if he's really grappling with the issues, if he's providing something to me that I can learn from, but not if he's fake, not if he's trying to bamboozle us. Louis C.K. is another former hero of mine. For a few years there, he seemed to be everything I wanted from a comedian. 
And then he turned out to have this weird pattern of abusive behavior. And for a while, he seemed to be acknowledging that. And I thought, okay, well, his comedy might get even better now. He might really go into some deep territory here. Some self-reflection, some dark analysis. He's equipped. He's capable. He could do that. And instead, he swerved and he started telling self-defensive jokes about how unfairly he was treated and, and so on. And and that's not interesting to me. So I don't have time for it anymore. There are too many other comedians who actually make me laugh and who I actually do learn from and who make me think, okay, do you see what I mean now about the complications of this? I can reliably listen to Saul Bellow on what it's like to be an immigrant and what it's like to be a younger brother, a Jewish man growing up in Chicago, a citizen of Chicago, even an academic or an intellectual. But when he starts telling me about marriage and women, I shrug. He had no idea. He was clueless. He was myopic. Philip Roth was even worse. I don't need to hear from misogynists who are trying to tell me about men and women and the relationships between them unless they realize that they're misogynists and they're wrestling with that. That can be illuminating. But if they're just unreconstructed or, or defensive or deceitful, I can set that part aside, and it's up to me whether the pros outweigh the cons for that writer. For Bello, it usually does. I love the pros so much, and the observations, and the energy. I can look past some of the problems, some of his blind spots. For Roth, it usually doesn't. His blind spots overwhelm, at least in my reading. It's fingernails on the chalkboard for me. Maybe it's different for you, and that's fine. We all get to choose what to read for ourselves. We all have different scales for what we can tolerate and what no longer appeals to us. I still root or rooted for Tiger Woods and Brett Favre after they had off the course and off the field stumbles, but I didn't hero worship either of them. Nobody's perfect, but we are also free to make decisions for ourselves about who we like and who we root for and why and who we read and why and what we take from it. So let's get to Larkin. We need to talk about his life first, his life and his poetry, and then we'll talk about the revelations that came out after his death. I'm not sure I'll have an answer for you, but I can tell you what it all meant for me. So let's listen again to this. This is Bessie Smith, one of Larkin's favorites. When he appeared on Desert Island Discs, he chose this song as his favorite, the one he would take to the Desert Island. Unsurprisingly, it's called... I'm down in the dumps. I'm going down to the river. Into it I'm going to jump. Can't keep from wearing. Oh, I'm down in the dumps. Someone knocked on my
Okay, I'm going to skip over most of Larkin's childhood. We'll return to that afterwards. Instead, let's jump to college. He was born in 1922 to a middle-class family, and in 1940, he arrived at Oxford. Poor eyesight had kept him out of the military in the war. Soon he met Kingsley Amos, who was also there, and the two became lifelong friends. They were part of a group of seven or so boys who liked literature and poetry, who liked jazz, who liked to drink, and who hung around making fun of everything around them. Romance was a source of frustration for Larkin. That was one of the great themes in his poetry. You've already heard that a couple times. We'll hear some more of it soon. In his famous line, he once said that deprivation was for him what daffodils were for Wordsworth. But he was funny. His friends valued him for his humor and his wit in his conversation and in his letters. And since much of what is of his subsequent reputation depended on those letters, we should probably acknowledge that there may be some performative aspects to them. We all have this side to us where we play to the audience we exaggerate tendencies, we try to shock or provoke. I've heard comics say that when they get together, things get very blue and very dark and very ugly very fast. Everyone starts one-upping each other. And if you're in a culture of, let's say, telling dirty jokes, the comics talking to one another might get more extreme than they even would get on stage. I think there's an element of that to reading Larkin's letters now. Sometimes his topics being sex and misogyny and racism, we'll get all the get to all of that later. But think of it in this context: a guy in a dorm room drinking, showing off to his buddies, laughing about stupid shit. And later they wrote letters to each other and kept up some of that same persona. And it's probably a case where his reputation would have benefited from some letter burning. All those boys grew up and they should have grown up more than they did, perhaps. But anyway, it was a hugely influential period for him, as it was for Kingsley Amos, to meet people who think like you do. And Amos was writing poems, and Larkin was writing novels, and then they flipped. Larkin published a couple of his novels, Jill in 1946 and A Girl in Winter in 1947. While the publisher was getting Jill ready, Larkin was asked if he had any poetry, and he did. And that came out a little before Jill, The North Ship was the collection. He was 25 now, and he had three books out already, two novels and a book of poems, but it wasn't enough to live on, and he never completed another novel. So instead, he continued his career as a librarian and wrote poetry while he was working, or, well, during the same period where he was a librarian. He had started this in 1943 in Shropshire at a public library, and then he took posts at university libraries, which took him to Leicester and Belfast and Hull. He was in Belfast for five years, and Hull, where he worked for 30 years. Leicester was where Kingsley Amos had visited him famously. University life there inspired Amos's novel Lucky Jim, which is dedicated to Larkin. It's also a novel Larkin helped with quite a bit as I mentioned before. For 40 years, over 40 actually, Larkin was a librarian and he was good at it. Rising through the ranks, making changes, being influential. He had lost his hair and he had thick glasses all his life and every 10 years or so he came out with a new volume of poetry. Just four volumes, really. That early one, The North Ship, from the 1940s. 
The Less Deceived was 1955, The Whitson Weddings in 1964, and High Windows in 1974. And then Collected. Editions of Collected Verse. That doesn't seem like much. Four main collections in 30 years. But if we add in the poems that he published but didn't, that didn't make it into the collections and the poems that were finished but unpublished at his death, it comes to about 250 poems in total, which feels like a real body of work, especially since so many of them are so good. Let's hear a few more. This is Honest Mirabilis, written in 1967 and published in High Windows in 1974. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. Up to then, there'd only been a sort of bargaining, a wrangle for the ring, a shame that started at 16 and spread to everything. Then all at once the quarrel sank Everyone felt the same, and every life became a brilliant breaking of the bank, a quite unlosable game. So life was never better then, in 1963, though just too late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. That's Larkin at his most winning, charming, once again, it's the theme Wow, look at this change. We were bargaining back in the old days. We were wrangling full of shame about sex. Convinced or told that it had to be only within marriage or between two people committed to marriage. And all that shame spread to everything. That's who we were in the 30s and 40s. And look at kids today. It all changed seemingly overnight. People could read D.H. Lawrence and they were about to get the Beatles. And those people, those kids could have sex and didn't feel that burden of guilt. And of course, the great parenthetical, which was rather late for me. And though just too late for me, of course, sexual intercourse didn't begin in 1963. If it did, there would be no humans but the exaggeration helps us here because it felt that way to someone born in 1922. Rock and roll probably felt that way too. This is a Depression era, World War II era person looking at the baby boomers and saying, wow, we were in black and white and you're in color. And why am I so old now? I was bald by the time you guys got up to that. My generation talks about internet dating like this. Oh my God, we had to meet people in person, maybe one in a month. You'd go to bars and nobody would ever be there. And somehow you'd try to talk to people and work up the courage to ask them out. But our field was so small. We didn't have access to hundreds or thousands of people all at once. You kids, how can anyone ever be lonely? Just swipe and swipe and swipe and you'll get there. He's knowing here, even though he's coming across as the old man who missed out that deprivation again. But he's knowing the Chatterley Band, the Beatles' first LP, it pinpoints it in a very cultural way, a very knowing way about the culture. And look at those touchstones. Chatterley, D.H. Lawrence, required reading, racy 
but still sort of required reading. Larkin's father gave it to him to read when he was young. But the Beatles, that was uninhibited. That was sex. They were still in suits. But it was all over now. Sex was allowed. Screaming, shrieking was allowed. Unbridled passion was allowed. And then that world before was all over. The world of Larkin's teens and 20s looked like ancient history. And Larkin hears the perfect voice for it, the perfect English voice. Here's what happened. I missed out. I'm a librarian. I have thick glasses. I'm bald. And when I was young, I was miserable, full of guilt. I had bad timing. It's so English. <laughs> oh, look at that sunshine. Well, it rained on me. <laughs> it appealed to me, too. I feel this way. It still appeals to me. This is the kind of voice I like. So let's hear another one. This is from 1973. Money. Quarterly, is it? Money reproaches me. Why do you let me lie here wastefully? I am all you never had of goods and sex. You could get them still by writing a few checks. So I look at others, what they do with theirs. They certainly don't keep it upstairs. By now they have a second house and car and wife. Clearly, money has something to do with life. In fact, they have a lot in common. If you inquire, you can't put off being young until you retire. And however you bank your screw, the money you save won't in the end buy you more than a shave. I listen to money singing. It's like looking down from long French windows at a provincial town. The slums, the canal, the churches ornate and mad in the evening sun. It is intensely sad. This has such richness to it. Not every line in here is great. There's a couple clunkers, but it's so rich how it resonates, especially at the end. We're all telling ourselves we're wasting our time. We're not living to life to the fullest. We're not seizing the day. That's a common feeling, right? Our time is precious and it's going to be gone. And what good will it do to save? You pinch pennies, but you can't take it with you. But that's not the easiest thing in the world to get right. Because you don't know how long you're going to live. You also have to save for rainy days. That's the other thing we hear all the time. Oh, don't be wasteful. Save save a little. You don't know what's going to happen. Save for a rainy day. These are cliches, but they're direct opposites. Which is why I'm using them to make a point. We want to seize the day, but that costs money. We save for a rainy day, but that postpones life. That's not seizing the day. The problem here is that our lives are not free. They're entangled with money. They have a lot in common, if you inquire. As Larkin says, inextricably tied to money, our lives are. Very few of us have enough of it. So we're all playing this game of trying to live as much as we can, but worried we'll run out. How many times have you heard that when people are talking about their parents, for example, or parents worried about that after they retire? They think, I want to travel. I want to see China. 
I want to do all these things, but boy, I don't know. I don't know. I'm 65. What if I live to be 100? That's 35 years. Will I have enough? Will I have enough? That's a lot to budget for, but I might only live 10 years. But we all face this when we're in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s too. Doesn't It's not just people who retire who have to worry about running out of money or going into debt. And yet... How do we live life to the fullest if we're afraid to spend anything at all? And money mocks us. You don't have enough of me to do what you want. You're doing things you don't want to do because you need me. Churches ornate and mad in the evening sun in that provincial town. The sun is setting on all of us people. And the town and the church in particular are resisting that. Spending but furious, ornate and mad. And it's all intensely sad. It is intensely sad. Four simple words. The shortest sentence in the poem. It, it's not even a full line. Stands out. Two periods in that line. It, he doesn't say what it is, but he doesn't need to. Because we know. It's more than one thing. That's better sometimes. It is intensely sad. All this. It. All this. All this I've just said. And this vision I've given you, this image, and these ideas, that's the it. And it is intensely sad. These poems are so good. Oh, I'm not even reading what many consider to be his best. There is MCMXIV, or 1914. Wits and Weddings, and Arundel Tomb, Church Going. There are a dozen others as good as the ones that I've chosen to read here today. Maybe another dozen. Maybe there's 20, 30, 40. All or nearly all of Larkin's poems have a line that sticks, something that surprises, a twist, something neat or sharp or funny. Here's one called Obad, which means a song or poem greeting the dawn, a morning love song. A kind of, an obad was the kind of poem that a troubadour would sing as he was leaving his mistress in the morning. Obad. I work all day and get half drunk at night. <laughs> Let me just pause there. That's such a good line. Obad. I work all day and get half drunk at night. What is that? That marching cadence. And what does it march to? That's our morning love song in Larkin Larkin land. Here we go. Let me start over. Obad. I work all day and get half drunk at night. Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time, the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's really always there. Unresting death. A whole day nearer now, making all thought impossible, but how and where and when I shall myself die. And interrogation, yet the dread of dying and being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. Let me pause there. 
This isn't a troubadour strumming his lute and singing to his fair mistress and the wonders of love as he leaves her at sunrise, excited about the dawning of a day and the love of the night before. This is morning spelled with a U. The poem was published on December 23rd, 1977 in the Times Literary Supplement, and Larkin noted that he had probably ruined a few Christmas dinners with it. <laughs> this is Hamlet's soliloquy, updated for the 20th century. The poem continues. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse, the good not done, the love not given, time torn off unused, nor wretchedly, because an only life can take so long to climb clear of its wrong beginnings and may never, but at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid. No trick dispels. Religion used to try. That vast, moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die. And specious stuff that says no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel. Not seeing that this is what we fear. No sight, no sound, no touch or taste or smell. Nothing to think with nothing to love or link with, the anesthetic from which none come round. And so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small, unfocused blur, a standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen. This one will. And realization of it rages out in furnace fear when we are caught without people or drink. Courage is no good. It means not scaring others. Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different, wind at, than withstood. Slowly light strengthens, and the room takes shape. It stands plain as a wardrobe. What we know, have always known, know that we can't escape, yet can't accept. One side will have to go. Meanwhile, telephones crouch, getting ready to ring in locked-up offices, and all the uncaring, intricate, rented world begins to rouse. The sky is white as clay, with no sun. Work has to be done. Postmen, like doctors, go from house to house. Oh, boy. Telephones crouch, getting ready to ring in locked-up offices, and all the uncaring, intricate, rented world begins to rouse. The sky is white as clay with no sun. Work has to be done. This is bleak stuff. We're all wasting our time, avoiding the inevitable, avoiding contemplating the inevitable. There's a bit of humor, humor in this misery, but not the broad humor that we've heard so far. They F you up, your mom and dad. They don't intend to, but they do. That's not the, This is pretty unrelenting. But if you're like me, you love this stuff. It's mother's milk. So, 
We have our kindly librarian with the thick glasses, the unassuming man, the, the, raise, the bald head, the razor-sharp wit, the feeling of having missed out, the king of deprivation. And yet he's an artist, a wonderful writer, worthy of admiration and envy. He's not living like the Beatles, but a lot of people would say, hey, if I could be a revered poet, I'd take that. I'm not a rock star either. I wouldn't mind being a poet. People might say that. Maybe I'd even prefer it. A lot of respect comes a poet's way. You can have a long career instead of a bright, flashy one. It's especially true in Larkin's time and place. Poets were valued. It looks artistically satisfying from the outside. He was in anthologies. He was viewed as major. He avoided publicity, but this was by his own choice. He was called Britain's other poet laureate. That was his nickname. Because even though someone else officially held the title, he had always turned down being Poet Laureate. So there was someone else who was the Poet Laureate, but everyone said, ah, we've got a Poet Laureate. Come on. Everybody knows. It's like (laughs) Phil Jackson used to say that about Michael Jordan whenever someone else would win the MVP because they didn't want to give it to Jordan every single year. Carl Malone would win it. Charles Barkley would win it. and, And Phil Jackson said, come on. For the last 12 years, we know who the MVP has been in this league. Ever since he got here, he was the MVP. No one was more valuable than him. That's kind of like what it was like with Larkin. Ah, okay. We can call so-and-so Poet Laureate. We know who the Poet Laureate is. We know who's got that stature and who's as quintessentially English as Philip Larkin. And then he died in 1985 at age 63, and then the letters began to be published, and the biographies began to come out, and a whole different life emerged than the one I just described. A lot of what we learned fit the conception. Larkin in his letters was funny and grouchy, which is what we would expect. But he was also casually racist to an alarming degree, and he was misogynist also to an alarming degree. His father, it turned out, was a Nazi sympathizer, who had attended a couple of rallies at Nuremberg. Larkin had a number of long-term relationships with women. He could be controlling, and it seems even cruel, and a little bit odd. I'll put it that way. Although some new letters have come out, suggest that maybe he was a little more gentle than that, a little kinder, a little more caring, more anguished than we might have thought before. Larkin had his diaries destroyed and probably would have destroyed his letters if he could have. And there's a a crassness in them that suggests some sexual hangups that are sort of sordid, but not really any of our business. In other words, we maybe got more of a look behind the curtain at the life of a man who was pretty private and presented himself through his poems, which was a version of his self and the one, the version that he wanted us to see. But once you get that look behind the curtain, you can't just ignore it either. We can still love the poems, but we can also recognize that the poet was not perfect. As fans of literature, the glass-half-full way of looking at all this is to say that a rich and complicated life gives us more to consider. His childhood was miserable, and his relationships often were, and there's something noble about looking at it that way, as if he brought out his best side to put in his poems. 
He talked about his melancholy and misery with grace and good humor, and it wasn't false. There was deep pain and misery and melancholy there. That's the glass half full way to view it. He was down in the gutter of life, but he knew how to clean up and shower and put on a nice suit and could deliver the goods when he needed to. It was a noble struggle to do that. The glass half empty way is to say, oh, damn, here was one of my faves. Someone I actually looked to for some guidance as I once looked to Bill Cosby and Woody Allen. And while the art stands apart, yes, I get it. I hear you. I know that. I know you can say that. But for me, it drags things down to know that my guide through life was hiding such secrets. You can make up your own mind about this. Please don't try to make up my mind for me. This happens because humans are humans and life is life and mistakes are mistakes. We're always wrestling with the good and the bad. And when it comes to art, maybe sometimes we have to admit that we like poems written by flawed people more than we like the ones written by the saints. Maybe we have the same feeling about sermons. Maybe we need that misery and dysfunction to work its way into the art, and maybe that gives it an edge, a shadow, a darkness that actually functions to make it better. Or maybe we roll our eyes at the facade and say, this isn't real, it's false. This person was acting when they wrote this, or said this, or put this on film, and so it means less to me than it once did. Or maybe we're caught in the middle of all this, as one of Larkin's lovers was. Monica Jones was his friend and lover for 37 years. The two of them have something like 2,400 letters that they wrote to one another, which are now available to scholars. She was his intellectual equal, and he treated her as such, and he left most of his belongings to her when he died, and he dedicated a volume of poetry to her. For years, they spoke on the telephone every night. And they would get together and take trips together. And yet, he cheated on her too. He had affairs with other women in Hull, which he did behind her back. She outlived him, and she learned all of this after he died. So maybe we're caught in the middle, like Monica Jones was, who once said, he lied to me, the bugger, but I loved him. Maybe that's true of our relationship with Larkin. He lied to us, but we love him. Hmm, maybe it's true of our relationship with everyone. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Isla, that wonderful daughter, and her mother, Annabelle, some good friends of the show. The postcard is going in the mail, and we will... Guess what, people? We're going to have a special month of June. Two episodes a week. We'll return to that schedule just for that month. Some really great episodes in the works, too. We've got some authors talking about their favorite works, including... Let's say a work by a Victorian novelist and a work by Shakespeare. Two of their choices. We should have a couple of drafts with Mike Palindrome ready for you and a translator of an ancient work. Interview with that person, which I won't spoil. Watch this space, as they say. TBD. 
Enjoy your May. Maybe go read some Larkin. Go read about his life if you're interested or stick to the poems if you're not. They're worth reading and they are illuminating and inspiring, even if the biography is a little less so. A little depressing, but then again, maybe maybe Larkin would have been okay with that. Maybe that's part of our deprivation. We don't always get daffodils, people. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.